Jesus. Hello and welcome to another episode of Blu-ray Boutique. I am your co-host, Rosalie Lewis. And I'm your other co-host, Tim Rosenberger. And today we are talking about adult animation. So this was my topic. I was excited to dive into it. And, you know, when I think about adult animation, a few different things come to mind, right? I think, you know, Roger Rabbit, which ostensibly could be for kids too, but I feel like it was something that could aim at both adults and kids and mixed animation with live action. And then I think of things like Cool World, which I saw mm. um, around this, you know, later time, but um, similar to Roger Rabbit in that it mixed that live action and animation. And then other things like, you know, anime, which sometimes anime is something that can be universal. And, you know, some of the, the great uh, Miyazaki films, you know, kind of come to mind. But then there are other ones that are decidedly more for adults. And I think then, you know, in the last 20, 25 years, we've seen a lot of television animation that is aimed strictly at, you know, teens to adults with things like Adult Swim, mm -hmm. right? Or some of the South Park episodes, which I know kids watch, but you know, may not be necessarily appropriate. So when I brought this topic up, I'm so glad that, you know, Tim, you were willing to take it on. I'd be curious to know what your experience has been and, you know, with adult animation overall, is it something that you like? Is it something you steer away from? Mainly my experience with adult animation is more for more adults or older demographic aimed television uh, specifically mm -hmm. for like stuff like anime and stuff i've caught some bigger chunks and some just little bits and pieces of some anime that was very dark and some stuff that might be for older teenagers or something or whatever and then of course there's stuff like i mean the simpsons i guess is more of a family show but there's certainly adult edge to it and the stuff like family guy which is more adult obviously and then south park i've caught bits and pieces of which is very obviously adult but then i have seen stuff that is more I don't want to say adult necessarily, but maybe in a way more mature and a little bit more complex in terms of like the, the films you mentioned, like Spirited Away or Howl's Moving Castle or something like that. But yeah, that's my, see my stuff, mostly with television. Yeah, I think my exposure had been a lot of stuff on TV. I mean, I didn't grow up with a lot of movies animated or not, but I do think animation in general is something that can be really beautiful and really artistic and can express things in a different way than live action where it has, you know, the ability to do these somewhat surreal things or, you know, kind of do juxtapositions of things that you wouldn't see in the real world or be able to do in the real world. And depending on the type of animation, you know, there's hand-drawn, there's, you know, computer-generated, there's claymation type of stuff, right? Or stop and motion then there's, um, And then there's the... Well, there's... speaking of Ralph Bakshi, there was the Lord of the Rings animated, which was... Oh, I'm getting the name of that now. But they have real people and they put animation. The rotoscoping. Rotoscoping, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, Waking Life was in that style yes. as well. Yes, and um, uh, Scanner oh. Darkly. Yeah. So Richard Linklater has used that before. And so, yeah, there's a lot of different techniques that are out there. And I think when people traditionally hear animation they maybe think of like disney movies but there's just so much more to it than that you know and i've had the unfortunate experience of like recommending an animated movie to someone <laughs> and they'll just brush it off and say oh i don't really watch cartoons and i'm like 
that you're missing out then. Like you're missing out on a huge influential art form that is, Mm -hmm. you know, has a long and storied tradition. And I think about how comic books have sort of had a resurgence Mm -hmm. and have grown in appreciation and respect in the culture. And to some extent, I think animated movies have as well, but I still feel like it's more of a niche than maybe it should be. Well, I think part of the problem too is, I mean, this is just a small piece of it. Certainly not the whole thing, but I think uh, something that would help is if more film animated films that were not Disney Pixar films won Best Picture. Yeah. <laughs> Best animated film because most of those, I mean, I don't know how many. But I was looking at the other, but most of them are Disney Pixar mm-hmm. films, and there's a various stream, especially international films, non-American films that are in there. Some that are more adult. I think Grave, I think Grave of the Fireflies might have been nominated for that. I can't remember. I think it might have been. But at, those usually don't win those things. Again, the Oscars be, can can be very influential and important. And one of the benefits of it is getting smaller films that haven't made $200 billion people to know about them. And yeah. I think part of that, too, it's probably funding, too. I'm sure it's hard to get funding for an adult animated uh, anime film that's aimed at adults, at least in the United States. I think places like Japan stuff can do it much more easily, but... Here, I think it's yeah. difficult. That's very true. Well, that's a good segue into the conversation about the movies we're going to talk about today. So we have two, I would say, pretty different in style, but there yes. are going to be some commonalities <laughs> that I'll bring up in the theme. Are you going to discover a one we're talking about is a Ralph Bakshi film called Heavy Traffic and Ralph Bakshi for those who don't know you mentioned that you know he did the Lord of the Rings animated um, not, 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 not talking Hanks. about the Peter Jackson ones but if you've ever seen the animated Lord of the Rings that was Bakshi he also did Cool World which oh. wasn't very well received no. at the time but oh. I think it's a really rad movie and um, young Brad Pitt in one of his yes, very early movies very gorgeous and you might be familiar with wizards that was also ralph bakshi and he made his infamous debut feature fritz the cat which was based on a robert crumb comic strip and as we'll probably talk about he and robert crumb have some similar um styles i would say in terms oh, was, of subject matter oh the criterion collection crumb documentary That's the guy? one i have not watched yet watched that documentary i've heard he's interesting though he's an interesting guy <laughs> for sure so fritz the cat um came out in 1972 and it was the first animated film to ever receive an x rating and it's also unexpectedly the most successful independent animated feature of all time so oh, wow. uh, even now, you have studios that don't want a movie to be rated R, and yet here was a movie that was rated X that still not only got made, but made more money than any other independent animated feature. So pretty amazing. That is that, Well, to be fair, though, that is a different time. It's and, a different time. And but... I'm sure part, I don't want to be cynical about it, but I'm sure part of it, not all of it, I'm sure part of it, I would think part of the reason it made so much money is because people are like, what is this rated, rated X Sure. Cartoon going to be about or animated. It's definitely one of those things where I think um, it was definitely the the transgressive nature of it made more more people curious about it for sure. And it still has a reputation. You know, it's it's one of those movies that people still kind of talk about or giggle about, or even if they've never seen it, they've maybe heard of it and mm-hmm. know that it's supposedly very notorious. So a little bit about Bakshi before I get into the movie itself. 
he has an interesting background. So he was born in a part of Palestine that has since become Israel um, to a Jewish family. And then he and his family migrated to the U.S. about a year later. So, you know, for all intents and purposes, he grew up in Brooklyn and they were very poor. They didn't have much money. He talked about the neighborhood kind of always being in disrepair and they kind of felt like they were ignored by the rest of society. Almost all of his friends were you know, African-American. Um, the school he went to was actually all African-American except for him. And then the police were actually called on him because it was before, you know, segregation had been eliminated completely. So he ended up having to transfer to a different school. So you'll see in his movies, both the one we're going to talk about and some of his others that, you know, the topic of racial politics and the topics of like being poor, living on the, you know, kind of the dirty street life definitely permeate the types of themes that he explores. And he's talked a lot about, you know, kind of being a fan of really classic artists, like he, you know, modern artists as well, but like, you know, Jackson Pollock and things like that. So he was influenced by, you know, that art form and he was a painter and an artist, but he also, you know, loved animation. And so he ended up starting at a cartoon studio and then eventually branched out on his own and he has such a unique style. So I think we'll probably talk about that a little bit with heavy traffic. So let's talk a little bit about the plot such as there is <laughs> for heavy traffic. So this movie came out in 1973 mm -hmm. and it is animated, but there are little sections that are live action as well. So the movie is sort of bookended and then there's little interstitials we, of a guy playing pinball. We, and it should and, be, and it should be said that there are live action backgrounds like, plates yeah. and he does mix different art forms together you mentioned he's a fan of classical more uh whatever classical people or more upper fine, art. fine arts people like uh but there's one famous painting which is one of my favorite favorite paintings of all time uh, nighthawks by edward yes. hopper which he uses very uh prominently uh mixed with his own animation but anyway go ahead yeah i love that he kind of incorporates all those different art pieces and backgrounds into the animation so the movie introduces us to a character named Michael, and Michael is both portrayed in both the live action and in the animated portions as this cartoonist who's sort of struggling to, I guess, figure out what he wants to do with his life other than sit in his parents' very decrepit apartment and draw his cartoons and occasionally flirt with a local bartender. And we see, in addition to kind of Michael's story and his little biological or you know biographical threads we also see various interactions between tough folks on the street so there's michael's dad who's like a very low level like very low level gangster <laughs> like <laughs> mafioso who um seems to think he's hotter stuff than he really is there's the aforementioned bartender whose name is carol and she is an african-american woman who gets unfortunate hurled at her and is not treated super well for a lot of different reasons there's shorty who's a bouncer who also works the bar and he's an amputee so he does not have legs and he rolls around on this sort of skateboard situation ish mm -hmm. and then there's also a number of other characters that have more minor parts in the story but just a lot of like interactions on the street you know neighbors strange surreal sequences of song and dance and all of this really just takes place in like a very scuzzy new york city like this is the new york city that you know taxi drivers 
Robert De Niro was like, someday a rain is going to come and wash this stuff off the, the streets. The like, pan, it, it's very grimy. Panic Needle Park, New York, not to... Yes, exactly. That's a perfect way to sum it up. So that's like the majority of the plot. Like I said, there's not much of a plot. It's very episodic. It kind of weaves in and out. And it's not entirely clear which parts of these things are happening and what's just in the imagination of the protagonist. But that's also kind of one thing I liked about it. This was my first time watching this movie. I had previously seen Coonskin, which he made right after Heavy Traffic. And I would say that one is a much more polished version of his kind of Tales of New York. But I'd love to know what your reaction was, because you went in pretty blind. Yes, I did. I didn't know very little about it, um, or almost really nothing about it. Well, when I was watching this movie, I thought about, what I thought about a lot was something when certain child actors try to move on into more adult-themed roles and stuff. A mistake not all of them can make, but certain ones can make, is they go for really heavy R stuff with a lot of violence <laughs> and sex and stuff in it, and it kind of does the opposite of what they're wanting to do, because it comes off as very immature and yeah. not really adult. So when I was watching this movie, it just came off... It's it's certainly something that... You, please do not show this movie to your kids. Um, no. It's rated, also rated X, unlike Princess and Cat. I think there was an R-rated edited version at some point. I think the version that's out now... Because who did this? Is this Kino? I believe this is Kino, yeah. yeah. So Kino, I think they have the X-rated version. But it earns its X rating in the first two minutes or less. Mm-hmm. So it has a lot of adult contact, a lot of violence, a lot of nudity, a lot of sexual stuff in it. But for me, it just seemed like, and I think I've read this might have been part of his point or something, but it, it seemed very much have sex, nudity, and violence for the sake of sex, nudity, and violence. Mm-hmm. Which And it, and it's very, I, I don't, you know, I'm not certainly not like a prude or anything, but it's very crass. And I just, I don't know, I just found it, there's certainly dark humor in there, and we'll get into that, but uh, just as a general kind of view of the movie, I just found it really gross. <laughs> sure. Yeah. That's an understandable reaction. I didn't connect to this as much as I hoped I would, which isn't to say I didn't like it. I actually like it, but I think I admire more than like, if that makes sense. I can see what he's going for artistically, and mm. I can appreciate the zaniness of the art and the really fascinating mashups of like, you know, he has a clip of like red dust in there, which is, you know, a Clark Gable movie. And he has these extended song and dance sequences, which I'm actually not sure what movie he pulled those from because I wasn't super familiar, but you know, he has these things going on in the background. So he's clearly like, you know, kind of cribbing from the best, but I, I, I liked the way he's sort of mixing high and low society and, and all of that, but it, it felt a little bit more like an art project than a movie at times, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I, the half star I gave this film, <laughs> what? Um, I gave before what you just mentioned, where I did admire the fact that, and I could recognize the fact that, I mean, I'm certainly no expert on, on, on animation history, but I admired the fact that I'm sure at this time this was an innovative thing in terms of having, or at least a unusual thing to mix, not just, you know, like stuff like Nighthawks with his animation, not just, you know, live action with stuff, but I think slightly different animation styles too. There's one mm-hmm. scene where the dad is talking to a group of people kind of almost on the waterfront ish, like and stuff about how 
on the New York waterfront about we're not going to have a strike and blah, blah, blah. And the, the people that are watching him talk are just kind of not even moving. They're just kind of like mm-hmm. still images. But those are slightly different art kind of style than the characters, other characters are. So he's mixing different styles in there too, even with the, the animated stuff. So I admired, like you said, those different mashing ups of, of artwork, of photography, of again pretty live action clips from Red Dust and some other black and white stuff. Some of which I'm sure is public domain. Like in the bar that Carol works at, in the background of at least some shots, you could see. I'm assuming they're supposed to be. You see, see live action people like dancing. Which mm-hmm. I'm sure it's supposed to be like in the fiction of this. There's a people actually dancing in the bar. But it's a live-action clip from whatever the hell movie it was. So I enjoyed the mixture of that. So I admire the technical stuff of it. But I don't really get it as, like, a movie. Like, I don't get... I read it was supposed to be partially about, like, urban decay and stuff. Mm -hmm. But I don't... I mean, there's certainly urban decay environments. But I didn't really see that as being... It being about that or being, you know... Or saying much about that. So I guess I don't get the point of the movie... Yeah. Which I guess is on me, really. I just don't get why I'm supposed to enjoy it. There's some dark humor stuff, which I can we'll probably get into that I enjoyed, but this, this, the, the more bigger point of it, I didn't understand. Yeah, I think it might have been better for me to recommend Coonskin as an entry point because that one, like I said, is much more plot driven and character driven, and it's more cohesive in what its overall message is. It's much more of a clear critique on race in America and, you know, people that are taking advantage of others under the guise of religion or politics. So it's much more clear what's Mm -hmm. being critiqued and why. Mm -hmm. And in this one, it's so loose that I think it would be easy for you to, if you didn't know his history, to mistake some of the things that you see on screen as either endorsement or at the very least, just like him not thinking it was that big a deal. So for example, you know, there's a, a, few characters that throw the n-word around and i get the 70s were a different time but you could definitely see that and be like okay does this guy just not get that that's offensive and i know enough about ralph bakshi to know like how he grew up and that he cares a lot about you know black causes and civil rights so i know that's not the tone he intended it but it does kind of come across now and read now as just him being like shocking for the sake of shocking yeah i mean i I don't think i never watched it thinking that i mean i don't you know i didn't know all that stuff about ralph bakshi's background i didn't watch it thinking oh ralph bakshi's racist or anything i certainly didn't think that i thought of it was was put in there maybe partially for you know accuracy of how people would have talked especially in those areas but also i think partially to to be i think was partially to be crass and stuff and to get people's attention to a certain degree Mm -hmm. again i wish he used some of that stuff more to say more stuff because sometimes it's just again the crass stuff just for being crass if that was partially why he was doing it it just comes off one the characters all come off as just i don't like any of them so um, it's hard for me to be invested in any of in any of them even our lead cartoonist dude but it's just you know you have people you can throw in the n-word around a lot you have people randomly stabbing each other while the cartoonist is trying to have sex with the girl who then falls off the roof yeah and stuff and then he says she had it coming and mm-hmm. stuff and it just comes off it's just like i i, I kind of uh, sometimes get that sometimes very obviously like intentionally crass stuff is there to say a message especially there was a play i saw once they did an adaption of keen lear 
And the country they were from, I think it was a very kind of repressed country. It was very kind of strict and government controlled in a bad way and stuff. So their play was, a version of it was intended to be crass to, as a statement to the kind of uh, almost dictator-like things they were living under. So in that, and something like that, I get, but this, I just don't like, I just don't get why I'm supposed to find it enjoy the, the crass stuff are being crashed, why I'm supposed to find that enjoyable, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's understandable. I will say, you know, I did find, even though the, the sexual stuff and the nudity stuff was really over the top, I, yeah. I kind of thought it looked really interesting and cool. And I don't feel like I've seen a lot of that on the screen and it did remind me of Robert Crumb who I know you mentioned you don't have a ton of familiarity with but he was one of those you know comic book and illustrative guys that you know was around during the 60s and made a lot of sort of adult themed sexual kind of themed comics and drawings and he was obviously critiqued for it but you know it was part of that whole sexual revolution that was going on so I do see this as sort of coming Mm. on the heels of that Mm -hmm. and I also think some of that is Ralph Bakshi poking fun at himself because he has referred to this film as somewhat autobiographical and while he was not a 22 year old virgin he actually got married at 21 and had a kid at 22 the character that he is ostensibly supposed to be is this complete like nincompoop when it comes to women who mm-hmm. like can't even do it with a girl who's like being paid to be with him and he has lots of opportunities but he just faints yeah. or I will succeed. S- so I thought that was kind of funny it didn't 100% work but no. I thought he was probably poking fun at himself yeah and I think I have read that he was it was partially I think a trying to parody actual porn and stuff mm-hmm. and so like that which I understand that and I will say with that with I said the uh, woman falls off her roof at one point. Basically, some of his friends bring a woman onto her roof so that he can finally have sex and blah, blah, blah. And he starts to do that, but then he kind of accidentally falls on her while he's taking his clothes off and she gets knocked off the roof and stuff. And um, later, while he's when he gets turned down by Carol, he's just talking to himself about how... You know, I'm uh, really not too big with the girls. I mean, it's, uh, it's obvious. Mick Jagger, I'm not. What if anyone notices that? Then it pans up, and this woman is still dangling from, like, a power line. <laughs> right. And I'll admit, that was one of the jokes that did kind of work for me. I mean, it is, you know, it's dark and crass and stuff, but it that one did kind of work and stuff. But, so, yeah, he does play up on that and stuff. So, yeah, I think you're right. He just trying to parody maybe himself and some of the stuff. He Maybe even parodying the adultness of stuff like Fritz the Cat or something to an extent, too. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. But, but no, I get that. It's just... And some of the and other dark humor stuff that works for me would be, like, sort of works for me. I think by this point it was so late in the movie and I had seen so much violence and all this stuff that it didn't work as well as it might have otherwise. But there's a scene where he goes to meet the Godfather because this was right after The Godfather came out, so they make references to The Godfather, like a character, a mafia guy called The Godfather. The main character is called, I think... Michael Corleone. It's Or something, or the it's last name is... very like, similar. It's something very similar to Corleone. That's the family last name. But anyway, they make a lot of references to The Godfather because it came out the year after. But uh, he goes to meet The Godfather in this warehouse thing, or in this dream sequence, I think it's supposed mm-hmm. to be. The Godfather gets shot by a lot of people who just come out of nowhere... And then he is in the body, so he has all these holes in him, but he's still talking like he's fine. And then he gets, like, shot through the head, and part of his head, skull comes off, and you can see part of his brain, but he's still talking like he's fine. <laughs> now, I think he might get shot again, but he's still talking like he's fine. And that was kind of funny. I'm assuming that was supposed to be a parody of, like, the James Caan 
Thane and Godfather. Um, so that was kind of funny, but again, it was so late in the thing. I had seen so much just violence by that point. It didn't work as well, but that was kind of funny. And then there was one more thing that I liked. It was gag very near the beginning of the movie where, because it's an Italian father with a Jewish mother, Michael has, mm-hmm. and they don't get along at all. And at the beginning of the movie, uh, he comes back, the father comes home drunk after he's been with his mistress, and the wife has just had enough, so she puts his head, as he's passed out, into the oven, turns the gas on to try to kill him, and he wakes up off that, and blah, 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 and he runs into Micah's room, knocks his head through the window, and breathes some air in and stuff, and then he starts yelling at the wife or something, or complaining about the wife to Michael, and saying how she's this and that, and the other thing, all this stuff, and then you just see an axe come right below his genitals. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and he says, "Thank God she needs glasses." And that was probably my favorite gag of the movie, though it's also the one that is probably the least crass out of all the stuff in the movie. But that was fine. So there is dark humor stuff that I enjoyed in it, but it was few and far between, unfortunately. Yeah, I also found that to be pretty funny. I think that was one of the highlights of the movie for me. But I also, you mentioned not really liking any of the characters, and I understand that. I actually kind of liked Carol. I thought she was pretty cool. She sort of comes across as like a, a coffee or, you know, somebody that Pam Greer would have portrayed in one of the yeah. Black Nation movies of the 70s. And I thought that her character was, you know, mostly portrayed as, I don't know if heroic is the right word, but she pulls herself up by her bootstraps for sure. And the people that she does end up exploiting are mainly people that probably deserve to be exploited. So she was probably the most likable character for me. And I kind of liked how, and I won't exactly explain how, but I liked how the movie, when it comes back at the end to live action, kind of showed who she maybe was in in reality and in the non-cartoon world. It's an interesting movie. I would say I... Would, I would recommend watching a different one of Ralph Bakshi's movies first. And if you like that, then check out this one because it might not be the best place to start. I do think it's interesting, but it's not my favorite for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly, it's not something I would watch again. But again, some interesting mixture of different mediums or media in there that yeah. uh, is interesting. So you can maybe go for it in terms of that if you're interested in animation forms and how to do beyond just the traditional Disney or Pixar like stuff. Um, there's a lot of different stuff in here that I think is interesting in that regard. Yeah, I would definitely say start with Coonskin. Coonskin is fantastic. I would say that is a perfect movie and really showcases what Ralph Bakshi does well, but also does it in a way that's much more palatable and like it still has some things that verge into the grotesque but it does it with a a sense of purpose that this movie is just lacking Okay, uh, the next one we're going to be talking about is a Japanese movie called Perfect Blue. came out in uh, 1997, or I, I believe so, because something else I saw said it was made it look like it was maybe released 
more widely in 1998. But anyway, IMDb, it says 1997. It was based off a book, I think, of a similar-ish title. It's Perfect Blue colon something or other. And there was a sequel to that book that came out before this movie uh, came out. And speaking of mixing art forms, they were originally, from what I read, were going to make this as live action. I think there was a funding problem, and uh, they ended up making it animated instead. Basically, though, this is a very different from the last movie we watched. Uh, much more character-driven, much more plot-driven. It's kind of a, a psychological thriller mystery, sort of, about a pop singer turned actress called Mima, who is trying to make the transition to being an actress. And at the beginning of the movie, she has just done her last performance with her pop group, who move on without her as a duo instead of the trio. And she goes into her first acting role, which is or one of the first at any rate. This acting role is as a supporting role in an ongoing mystery thriller drama. And her two, I guess, two main people at her talent agent, talent agency or whatever, uh, the guy once is very for this move, her being an actress. The woman, uh, Rumi, is very much thinks that she'd be better off to stay as a pop singer. But Mima really wants to become an actress and stuff, and she's really excited about doing that. And the direct, the directors and writers behind this show think she has a lot of potential and stuff. But uh, something is a bit off with Mima. And as she films more episodes of the show and her role gets bigger, the show that has kind of a murders going on in it, there are murders that start happening around Mima. And at the same time, she starts questioning her grip on reality as she can't quite tell what's actually happening and what's not. Things seem to be repeating themselves. And she is seeing a, seeing a spiritual version of her pop persona that is tormenting her and she doesn't quite know what's going on and things get uh, interesting uh, very interesting as we go on so i know Rosalie, that you had watched this at least this was at least your second time watching it and uh this is my first time watching it. i don't think i'd ever heard of it before this at all and uh again this is more like i said up top this was more kind of in line with more adult oriented animated stuff that i was previously familiar with because heavy traffic was a very specific 70s-ish, maybe 60s kind of adult animated thing. And this is a bit, this is, you know, 1997, you know, it's almost 25 years later. And obviously it's a different country, so it's it's very different. And this is something that's a bit more up my alley because it's, it's adult, but, you know, it's adult in ways of, you know, those very graphic murders, there's some nudity, there's very mature things about, about again, grips on reality and psychology. And that stuff I was more into, and I'm not terribly into psychological thrillers, but this was much more up my alley and something that I was able to kind of uh, sink my teeth in. Wow, I'm glad to hear that, because I would say this is, you know, one of those movies that the first time I watched it, I was just completely blown away. I didn't know what to expect, I just knew it was, I think I watched it at the time that I was working at the movie store, and... Mm -hmm. You know, a few people had recommended it to me because they knew I was trying to get into more anime. And I just didn't know what to expect. And then I watched it and I was just transfixed. I think from the very beginning where we meet Mima and she seems like, you know, she's she's definitely looking for more. But she's also from the very outset sort of troubled by like some creepy fan behavior and maybe some stalkers happening and 
you know, so that element was interesting to me. And then of course, those that, you know, follow me on Twitter or whatever, you know, that I'm super into noir and this Mm -hmm. definitely has some noir elements to it, even though it's a a very modern take on noir, there's, you know, some references to it, not only in the movie itself, but in the like TV show within the movie, which is a detective drama, double bind. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it has a little bit of like the erotic thriller thing going on. And so it definitely just felt like it's, of its own piece and it's so fully realized the other thing that is totally coincidental but i just noticed as i was looking it up before we started talking here tonight is that it was originally released on my birthday of august 5th uh in 1997 so i think it's meant to be that i love this movie but it's a movie that is so unique in its vision and unfortunately the director who amazingly this is his first movie Satoshi Kon he unfortunately passed away at like 45 from cancer and so he only made a handful of movies and all the ones that I've seen are phenomenal so I would definitely recommend more of his but just from the color usage and the way that you know she looks into different reflections and things Mm. like that they're techniques that I think I've seen in live action films that were then kind of mimicked in this to such an interesting effect. I think for me, one of the elements of the film that makes this, makes it work as well as it does is the editing of Mm -hmm. it because it really, because let's be honest. I mean, the whole idea of, of somebody who something stuff is possibly, or actually is some bad stuff, possibly is or definitely is happening around somebody who's losing their grip on reality is not the newest sure it's been something used i mean i don't know how much by the point of 1997 but it's something that has been used a lot i know a lot of people bring reference this and black swan with each other but it's something that has been done a lot but one thing i thought this i thought worked really well with this i don't think they always maybe they probably should take advantage of more in films like this is for the editing where again you see and part of this goes with the tv the the show within the movie where she'll go through an event and then she'll flash back to the beginning of that scene or day Mm -hmm. and while that it flashes back to that it says okay take two then goes through the whole thing again then okay flashes back take three or whatever so it messes with that sort of thing also messes with your reality a bit like there's one time where she wakes up to the same news announcement twice so it really messes with your head in ways much in much more effective ways than i think other films like this do and again i think a huge part of that is i think well for me the biggest part of that is just the editing so i commend whoever i don't see who the editor was but whoever did the editing for it i mean commend them tremendously um for that i think that gives the film most of its power is the editing yeah, I think that's uh, Haritoshi Ogata that was the editor. And you're right, like the way that it's cut together definitely adds to the mystery because it leaves us even more somewhat bewildered of, is this the TV show? Is this in her head? Is this really happening? Is she dreaming it? Like, there's a lot of different things that are going on there. And I feel like because it's animation, some things that might seem hokey or corny in a live action come across as much more sinister in this. Um, For example, you mentioned that she's sort of haunted by the pop version of herself, the pop idol version of herself. And there's a scene where the, that character is sort of in the room with Mima and then hops out the window and starts like skipping across Mm -hmm. the light posts. 
And even though it's very fanciful and in some contexts it could look almost cute, mm -hmm. in this it's like, you mm -hmm. know, kind of mocking her. And it definitely comes across as more sinister because you're like, where is this going? What is going to happen next? Yeah. Um, so I loved that through animation it was able to achieve something a little more yeah. creepy. Yeah, I think you could do something like that. In, and it should be said, there was a live-action version of this done, I think, in the early 2000s. I don't know how well it was received, but... There wasn't a live-action version of this done eventually. Anyway, I think you could do some stuff like that in live-action, but it would have to be different, because the way, like you said, that scene, where she kind of skips along these, like, light posts and stuff, it's a very anime way of doing that, especially even with, like, the she's giggling and stuff like that. It's a very anime way of doing that. I think you could do that in live-action, but it would have to be much more of, like, a spectral thing and stuff. You would mm -hmm. have to approach it differently. I think, like you said, like, the way they do this specifically, I cannot see it working. It'd be difficult to get it to work in live action. So yeah, there's, there's, there is the advantage of the medium in doing that. The other thing I loved about this animation was the detail in the faces and the character drawings. It doesn't look, I mean, there are certainly some characters in it that look like your very stereotypical mm -hmm. animated characters, but mm -hmm. there's different body types and different faces and some of those faces are very distinctive and like will haunt my dreams. So I love that because, you know, sometimes we see the the types of animation that come out now and it looks almost like a little generic. There's some of it that doesn't fit the mold, but this one definitely went outside of that normal expectation that you see in mm -hmm. typical animated film. Going back to the kind of the mystery thriller aspect of it, I think one thing that is pretty brilliant about the film is that it does keep you guessing until the end exactly what is going on. There is an answer to it. Mm -hmm. and I don't think it's supposed to be a like a question mark ending. I think there was a definitive this is what is going on ending. But there are various points in the film where you think, oh, this is what's going on. Oh, okay, no, maybe this is what's going on. Okay, no, maybe this is what's going on. So it does keep you guessing and on your toes. Um, and right when you think you know what's going on, there's kind of a 180 and you're kind of and you kind of lost again until right near the end of the movie yeah i liked that too because the first time i watched it i was like oh okay i've seen movies like this and then i was like oh wait maybe i'm wrong and then it would flip again so yeah it kept me guessing and yes like it's a bit ambiguous the first time through for sure but i think by the time you get to the end it's clear what happened and then you can kind of think back or Mm -hmm. rewind and watch certain scenes or whatever yeah and who was this also who who released this one what label did shout factory shout factory okay so shout factory uh did this one i think yeah you said there was a blu-ray of this is, has it been released or is it about to be released it's been released it actually okay. came out a few years ago now in 2019 one thing I liked about the movie, which I don't think maybe not be is, is may not be terribly obvious until near the end, is that I think the film is very much about um, identity and you know who you are, especially somebody who is in the public eye as much as she is. Mm -hmm. I mean, she seems to be a relatively not majorly successful, but at least somewhat known, someone known enough that interviewers and photographers and fans will wait outside her apartment and stuff and follow her a little bit pop idol person and then it's is it seems to be a quickly up-and-coming actress in a popular show and stuff and there is commentary about public personas versus i think private personas and what people's expectations for are for you in terms of fans and in terms of the people who 
you have around you in terms of like your agents and all that stuff. And I think that's very interesting. And just, and I think especially for like a pop idol, I think that's, it's, I think it was an appropriate first job to have her transition out of because I think mm-hmm. at least from my perspective I think pop idol I mean musicians in general musicians in general to a certain degree but I think especially pop idols have this sort of maybe more than other ones at least certain other musicians have this certain persona they have to put on anyway and they can be a bit more not always but they can not just in terms of the persona they're giving but in terms of how they dress or whatever they can dress very uh, eccentrically and all this stuff so there's a certain persona they're putting out there which could be very much them it could be stuff that they would clothes they would normally wear or maybe that is very much their personality but other times it is kind of a a role they are putting on and they're acting through and stuff so i think all that stuff is very um interesting and a very interesting way to have that bit of commentary and especially for like you know j-pop idols and girl groups and boy groups both then and now it's such a kind of cottage industry of these usually pretty young people that end up going and enrolling in almost like a school where they spend years like doing the choreography and learning how to sing and kind of being really curated into this is the pop image that you're going to be marketed as and you don't deviate from that right so it's very prescriptive and so the idea of a character wanting to break free of that and do something a little bit different and have a little bit more creative autonomy totally makes sense but then you know the downside is maybe you don't get to pick the types of work that you get offered and maybe you have to compromise a little bit of what you'd ideally like to be doing and maybe you know you do have to do some questionable photo shoots or whatever the case might be right so i i loved how this delved into that world a little bit and how easy it would be to kind of get exploited even as you're trying to gain more power over your own career yeah and some people around you maybe know you're being exploited more than you know it but and then also again dealing with the backlash of people around you and of your fans who maybe don't like the career transition or don't mind the career transition but don't like some of the choices you're making in your new job or Mm. whatever and having to deal with very creepy fans and stuff and fans that have kind of crossed a line and you know there's this immediate um excitement over oh i have fans or she figures out she does a website based around her which is kind of funny mm-hmm. because it's very early oh yeah internet was stuff my and favorite things is it, like they have to explain to her what a website is and she doesn't know how to go on it and stuff but yeah. she finds this website and initially she's kind of you know there's this appearingly fake uh diary entries from her quote unquote um and she usually finds them kind of funny and then she finds them kind of creepy because they have some stuff in there that she actually said that nobody should know that she said, and she gets kind of creeped out by it, and you can kind of obsessed with the websites, and that kind of mixes in with her losing grip on reality, because she's like, starts thinking of stuff that's said in the website is stuff that actually happened to her, even if it's not, and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, dealing with stuff like, oh, I have a website, that's kind of cute and stuff, I kind of <laughs> admire that, and you feel kind of good, and then you find creepy stuff on it, and then you get kind of weirded out, especially for younger people coming up. I mean, that's something you have to deal with, and I thought that this kind of, showed that kind of losing of her naivete uh, Mm -hmm. very well. There are parts of this that remind me of even of like Bergman films, right? Like to me, there's elements of persona in here. There's some Hitchcock in here. There's even the, I know the name Perfect Blue came from the book, but like it kind of reminded me of the Three Colors trilogy by Krzysztof Kruslowski. But Mm. there's little, little hints and illusions that 
really make this more than what it could have been. And so much so that I think that's what's made it so influential. Like there's a lot of talk about, I don't think this is spoiler to say, there's a lot of talk about this having influence like Darren Aronofsky. No, yeah, there's a scene... Yeah, like, there's a scene in the um, uh, where uh, uh, Mima is in the bath and she puts her head under the water or something, which I guess is a reference to I think Requiem for a Dream or something. Mm. Um, something like, one of his movies I think has something a scene very similar to that. I think he's referenced this movie as an inspiration, kind of he's homaging or ripping off that that scene from this movie. And um, I think. Oh, maybe I'm mixing this up with some other trivia, but I think Tarantino might have been inspired by this partially or something. I could be wrong about that. But yeah, there are some famous directors who did take direct inspiration from this movie. Yeah, for sure, Aronofsky, I feel like, nodded to it with Black Swan, even though that movie, I would say, diverges. But the whole kind of, is is this another side of me, or is this the real me, or is there somebody else out there that's taunting me? Like, those types of questions and obsessions definitely took some inspiration. And he even, um, Aronofsky even, like, spoke after Satoshi Kon died and, like, gave a tribute to him. So he certainly has been open with his praise. I believe that Christopher Nolan also is another filmmaker that was very influenced, not so much by this movie, but by Paprika. So if you ever get a chance to see Paprika, you should, and then watch Inception, and you'll see there's definitely a connection there, too. So very influential on some of our bigger named Western directors for sure. We should talk about, again, this is the, the theme is adult animated films. There are um, some we've mentioned or slightly mentioned some of the adult stuff. Again, there's murders in there. Something very graphic. There's very mature things about identity. There's also, and I do, I partially want to bring this up just as a content warning for people who would understandably be sensitive to this. There is a uh, fake rape scene in the movie in terms of the, the, the show that she is making her character gets raped in that and there is an attempted rape scene for real uh, at one point in the movie so this is a kind of warning those things are in there um they are fairly graphic but what did we um obviously rape scenes are a very understandably a very sensitive topic and a very sensitive thing to have in a movie they can often be exploitative and often just put in the movie just to be a shocker and they can just be an awful choice by the writer director. But what did we think? Do we think uh, did the the made up the fake rape scene and the real rape scene? Do we think those added something to this already very adult story? Do they do they should they be in there? For me, they're pivotal to the story because I feel like that's the turning point in a lot of ways for her character of feeling like she's doing something that she has to do to get taken seriously as an actress and the way that it's shot is I think a critique of the fact that these scenes are just thrown in there by you know Mm -hmm. writers and directors often whom are male like just because oh like that'll be an interesting shocking scene and of course like it's set at a strip club and the Mm -hmm. patrons are all like leering at her and you know I really liked that the actor who's portraying the rapist Mm -hmm apologizes to her between takes and she says it's okay because I think that that sort of checks in on her character but also checks in on like the whole depravity of the scene of like yes it's it's something she consented to technically but it's still even though it's simulated it still kind of feels like it's a violation yeah I thought it was portrayed really accurately in that way 
Yeah, I mean, I know one actor who I won't name, but he had to do an attempted rape scene. He doesn't actually get to rape the other character, but he almost does. He gets the point. He's sexually assaulting her. And the actor absolutely hated doing the scene. He said he wanted to jump out a window and smash his head open on the sidewalk. I bring that up only to say that, you know, those scenes, even though they're fake, and even if everybody, the director, writer, the crow crew, the other actors you're working, actor or actors you're working with can, are being very sensitive about it, it can still, I imagine, be very rough to shoot. And I like the fact that they did add that element of the actor she, he is, she's working with acknowledging her comfort level and stuff like that, especially since he seems to be the only one who does that. Yeah, he I, did. Everybody else seems like it's just business as usual yeah. and fine with it. And he's taking that time to sort of check in with her. Yeah. And it made me think, like, I'm so glad now when I read stories about movies being shot today, even just with, like, you know, a little bit of sex scenes or a little nudity where there's an intimacy coordinator who's there on set making sure that nobody's uncomfortable, that everybody has agreed to exactly what's going to happen, that it's very choreographed, that it's completely consensual, that, you know, nobody's being taken advantage of. And I think that's how it, it should be. But definitely in the 90s, I'm sure that was not even a thing. And, you know, in this particular, like, movie or TV show within a movie, Everybody is still on set, even though this is the type of scenario where you probably want to do a closed set and you probably would only want to have a very few like skeleton crew there to make sure that, mm -hmm. you know, the person on film is not inadvertently kind of being traumatized. So just an interesting commentary on all of that. I wanted to comment also on the actress that did the, the voiceover. So I don't know. Did you watch the the one with subtitles, or did you watch the English dub? I'm just curious. I watched the version YouTube, which was the Japanese uh, language version with subtitles. Okay, yeah, that's the one I did too. And I just thought that the the actress portraying Mima did such a good job. And there was an interview with her. Her name is Junko Iwao, and I'm not familiar with her other work, but she talked on that interview about how this was something very different from what she was used to. She's used to playing kind of like cutesy characters and. This is the first one where she had to like scream or yell or get angry or kind of freak out. And so she was nervous with those scenes, but that she enjoyed doing it. And it kind of like led her to feel like she was expanding her artistic palette a little bit. So that was fun to kind of get to know. And I think she portrayed the character with just the right blend of that naivete, but also that deeper inner life. Yeah, you can really sense... You get a lot of the desperation from her voice, but also the strong yearning to break out from being a singer and being an actress. And you can tell in the vocal stuff that the actress is doing how much she just... Well, there's certain stuff that she doesn't like doing that she's not quite comfortable with doing and that she's... Certain bad parts of the business that she's learning about, there's still... You can still tell in in her voice that it is something she does want to do and it's something that she is a bit of a dream for her and so there's a lot of subtle stuff in there i mean there's a lot of again screaming and yelling and very in your face in a good way scenes too but but there's a lot of subtlety in what she's doing vocally as well that really gets across all the layers of her character and not just the big story bits well the only other thing i was going to say is that as i mentioned at the top of the episode i do think there are small overlaps between this movie and Heavy Traffic in I'd the be, sense that... I'd be very interested to hear what these are. <laughs> in the sense that it, it can be hard at times to distinguish what's really happening from what's oh. going on in a character's head mm -hmm. and some of the 
I guess, episodes that take place getting kind of quickly going off the rails or going in a direction you weren't expecting and getting very violent or, or sexual in kind of an unexpected manner. So I would say there's a little bit of overlap, but not a lot and certainly extremely different styles. No. Yeah. But I say that because I think this illustrates exactly what we were talking about at the beginning. Like illustrates. (laughs) I didn't even mean to do that, but there's so many different styles when it comes to animation and it can be used to accomplish so many different things and it would be stupid to try to pigeonhole it, which people still do. Overall, I'm super excited that I got you to watch both of these movies, even though one was definitely better than the other, it sounds like. Well, I have to say, I have to say, combined, they are five stars, but uh, (laughs) unfortunately, one of them is half star. So, yeah, I think one did more of the heavy lifting for me personally. But um, I wouldn't say, in terms of my overall views of these movies, Perfect Blue, I think a very good psychological thriller. Definitely watch it. Again, four and a half stars for me mm-hmm. i mainly deducted stuff because it is a very played premise but they do the played premise very well and they keep you guessing a lot and stuff and they have talks about identity and stuff which i found which i liked and then heavy traffic while i didn't enjoy the movie really at all i do think it's interesting in terms of it is apparently ralph Bakshi's but most critically acclaimed film and a lot of people say it's his best film so it's interesting to see what that is for him as an artist and cartoonist and all that stuff it's interesting in terms of his history to see. And again, it's interesting just in terms of all the technical mixtures of different things that he puts in there. So I think Heavy Traffic, I wouldn't say people don't watch it. I think it's an interesting thing to see in terms of film history and especially animation history. Just be aware of the content of it and maybe be aware that it's more for historical viewing than possibly enjoyment viewing. I guess. Yeah, I think that's fair. Well, I hope that this will lead you and anybody else listening to kind of go down the rabbit hole of adult animated films. If there's a particular one that you like, please let us know, you know, on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you and kind of hear your recommendations because I'm always looking for more Mm -hmm. movies to check out. And I have seen all but one of Satoshi Kon's films. I still need to watch more Bakshi, but I, I plan to do that. And actually, Andy has quite a few of them here, so I should be able to easily access that well well i think we can definitely we'll probably come back to adult films adult and well adult films adults not adult adult films we're not going to talk about adult films we're not going to talk about adult films uh adult animated films or animated films geared towards adults we'll probably come back to this at some point with other films i'm sure there's all of us. There's a lot of stuff, other stuff we could talk about, obviously. Okay, so to talk about some upcoming stuff, um, where I think we're mainly stuff we're going to be talking about in terms of what's coming up in boutique labels is mainly going to be criterion oriented this time. But uh, there's some May titles um, that are interesting. May 10th, there is going to be Mr. Klein. Then May 17th, there is a Japanese movie called The Funeral, which I am vaguely aware of. I know there had been a. Um, a region, a U.S. Canada region, region one, a release of this. I think it had been out of print for quite some time. So, I, and that was a DVD. I don't think it's ever been released on Blu-ray before. So, I think this is the first time in HD for this one. And then uh, Rosalie's going to mention two, but I will mention one for May 31st is a 4K release of Double Indemnity, which has a gorgeous cover. I have to say, a wonderful, wonderful cover that I actually want as a poster now because it is so wonderful. But then you had two that you wanted to highlight. Yeah, absolutely. So these are two that 
I've been one that I definitely was hoping would show up on any label, but especially Criterion because it was unavailable for such a long time. And that is Chan is Missing, which is Wayne Wang's, I believe, debut feature. It's actually viewable on the Criterion channel. At least it was last time I knew, but it's kind of a low budget indie noir from the early 80s. And Wayne Wang is one of those filmmakers that I think more people need to hear about and be talking about. He's really just a talented guy and has done a lot of interesting stuff over the years. And then the other one is Mississippi Masala, which is directed by Amira Nair, and it stars Denzel Washington and Sarita Chowdhury. This one is a romance, but it also deals with culture clashes and kind of the, the two cultures of Indian immigrants and folks from Uganda and also, you know, the U.S. South. Um, kind of all coming together and it's a really gorgeous and well done love story that that tackles a lot of different things at once the cover for this one is also just really beautiful and vibrant and i can't wait to get my hands on it the last movie i'll talk about is not from criterion it's actually coming out from vestron video and that is a blu-ray release of walter hill's movie extreme prejudice this one stars Nick Nolte, Powers Booth, Michael Ironside, Maria Conchita Alonso, and Rip Torn. And it's all about a Texas Ranger who has a run-in with a drug lord. So this one should be very interesting. It's from 1987, and I know it's one of those VHS staples that I think made it onto DVD, but I don't own it. I'm excited to pick this one up on Blu-ray because Walter Hill is just one of one of my guys. And I will say there was one other one that I will mention from, I think it's Indicator, which is a label I have nothing from, but I do believe they do stuff in the U.S. I think they do other regions too. But there's uh, they have a series of box sets called Columbia Noir. Uh, there's one that is going to be released, I think sometime in the near-ish future, called uh, Columbia Noir Number 5. Um, this one is highlighting uh, six films from Humphrey Bogart, uh, Dead Reckoning, Knock on Any Door, Tokyo Joe, Scirocco, the family secret which i've just learned um he is not actually in he has a, he's an uncredited executive producer of it so that is his link to that one and uh the harder they fall which is the last film he uh so did which i've been wanting to see for a very long time because i'm very interested in uh boxing movies i'm very i like bogart a lot i'm interested in the swan songs of various people so um, this might be my chance to finally check that movie out. But yeah, like Rosalie, while I'm not as much of a aficionado of noir as Rosalie is, is certainly a genre that I like, especially when it has actors like Bogart, who I adore. So I um, might pick that set up when I have the chance. So uh, as we're recording this, a couple days ago, Criterion did a flash sale for 24 hours. And while I minded myself rather well this time and not completely going crazy i did pick up one title from that so it's been on my to purchase list for quite some time and that was pick up on south street Mm. the amazing movie that it's one of the prototypical noirs for me samuel filler directed it and Mm. really wonderful movie so highly recommend that can't wait for it to show up in my mailbox. And I think, if I uh, read your Twitter correctly, that you may have picked up a thing or two yourself. So, yeah, I tried to control myself as well, just because of money reasons. But I did pick, to pick up a couple things. One of them is an Eclipse release, an Eclipse Series 24, the actuality dramas of Alan Kane. And then another thing that just struck my fancy, the Scorsese shorts. 
collection. They deal with fictional stuff. Obviously, I think almost all or all of them have to deal with are set in or around New York City. And some of them are stuff you would expect, fictional stuff about a lot of his topics that he's become known for. But then also something, there's a little documentary about his parents, I think, in there too. So I'm very excited to kind of delve into that. So coming up next month, I'm very excited because we are going to be doing four films from Brendan Fraser, and that will be Airheads, Encino Man, Still Breathing, and Blast from the Past. So a quadruple feature of Brendan Fraser. I cannot wait. I've seen three of the four, so that will make for easy homework for me. And then the following month, we're going to be doing two films from Pedro Almodovar, so we'll be doing Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, as well as Volver. And then for Pride Month in June, we have a special guest who's going to be joining us, Nora McIntyre of Notoriously Nora, will be joining us. And we will be talking about Nightmare Alley, the original, as well as Scarlet Empress and Walk on the Wild Side. So that should be really exciting. I'm excited to have a guest on the show because we don't do that very often. And I'm um, excited to dive into some of those titles because I have not seen all of those movies. Yeah, and just for people to know, the theme it's for Pride Month, the theme of that one will be particularly lesbian cinema. All the films Nora picked, so it should be really fun. I'm really looking forward to getting more into Pride Month. It's something I think we've both been wanting to do more of, so I'm excited it's finally Absolutely. happening. So in the meantime, between now and then, you can find me on Twitter at Rosalie Lewis, as well as the occasional article or other fun musing and meandering on fthismovie.com. And you can find me on Twitter at CinemaPackRats, where you can find links to my YouTube channel, and you can also find our the podcast-specific Twitter account at Blu-ray Boutique. And you can also follow our parent website, which is at 25yearslatersite.com. They also have a Twitter, which is 25YLmedia, so check that out as well. And until next time, take care. <laughs>